So uh, you're missing out on a good time uh, to be here just one hour earlier. May pay dividends for the rest of your life. Um, where we've been? Well, this morning's uh, sermon title is going to be Religion, Reality, and Resolve. We're going to watch Jesus interact with the Pharisees, which in the gospel uh, is usually something that uh, is, is going to be confrontational, and it is again today. Uh, but then we're going to see one of the greatest stories of faith I believe you and I will read in the gospels. It is unbelievable uh, to read this, this story that we're going to get into today. And so uh, I just want to kind of prime that, get that ready, because you and I are going to be blessed. Uh, where have we been? Well, in the last couple weeks, right, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And I told you this. It's just the, the title of that sermon was just simply, It's All I Have. It's All I Have. Listen, friends, you and I need to understand that every day you wake up, you do not have a lot. You have a little with an awesome Savior. Like you have a little bit. And you think, man, well, I have this, I have that, I can take care of this. Okay, just, just broaden your horizon just a little bit and try to take care of the problems on your street. Try to take care of the problems in your community. Try to take care of the problems in your kid's classroom or your kid's school. Listen, you and I have a little bit in compared to what needs to be done. If you and I will just open up and hand that to the Savior, He will bless that, He will multiply that, and He will uh, not only do those things for the blessing of others, but here's what happens to you and I. You and I leave and live full because of what He ended up giving was more than we ever had on our own. Remember, that's, the, that's one of the key pieces of that passage is that little boy had five crackers, two sardines. I guarantee you when he left that feast, he was full. And it wasn't because of what he had packed. It was what Jesus did with what he had packed. You and I need to remember that. Last week we talked about the idea of there you go and here he comes. Jesus sends them ahead into a mess. He puts them on the boat. He shoves them out into the sea. He dismisses that same crowd. But he does that sending them off into a mess. There we go. It's life. Get in the boat. Get shoved off. There's going to be hard things coming. And when you and I are in that, it feels like we are in absolute trouble. And then what? There he comes. Here he comes. He's going to meet us right in the middle of that. You know, the story there is Jesus is walking out on the water. Their boat's being tossed about. They're all terrified. Peter says, if it's you, Lord, call me over and I can walk on the water too. And he gets out and he does walk on the water. It's only two people in history to ever do it. Right? We hammer Peter because he ends up taking his eyes off the Lord. But he's the only one to ever step out and do it. So we need to honor at least a piece of that idea and think, man, if Peter can do that, in my life there are moments that I'm going to have to do that. Jesus sends them ahead in the boat, and he sends them right into the mess. Then what happens? Well, Jesus keeps his time with the Father. Friends, if you and I are ministering to people, if we are loving people in your home, at your job, in your community, in your school, you have to be filled in order to do that. You have to have your time with the Lord for him to pour into you what he is going to take out later in service to other people. If the only perfect human to ever live needed time alone with God, who are you and I to think we can get away without it? Jesus keeps his time with the Father. It's interrupted once. It will not be interrupted twice. What happens? Jesus invites us to be a part of the miracle. Jesus is walking across the water. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And what does he say? Come on. 
And so you and I are living a part of the story. We are living a part of the miracle, just like Peter. What happens in your life, the invitations you make, the love and the care that you give other people, the word that you plant in other people's lives, it's bearing fruit. And in those spiritual miracles, you are a part. Jesus invites us to be a part. That is an amazing thing to think about. The second time we get to a boat story, right? But they are totally secure in both of those stories. In the presence of Christ, the first time Jesus is asleep in the boat, they are totally secure. There's not going to be anything that can stop God's plan or God's will. The Savior is on the boat. The Messiah is on the boat. It looks like it's going to capsize. It looks like they're in big trouble, but they are totally secure because they are with the Lord. Christian, that is you. The other one is this. They are sent on his mission. They are sent in his authority. And in that, they are totally secure as well. He's not in the boat yet, but he's coming. They are doing what he told them to do. And so he is on the way. That's the last couple weeks that we've looked at. Matthew 13, Matthew 14. Today, we're in Matthew 15. And we're talking about one of the most butchered words in our language. Religion. Like, we have just dismantled, broken that word. If you say it now, it's almost always in a negative connotation, right? Am I right or wrong? You hear the word religion and you're like, eh, right? Or the culture that we're living in, what do they think? So this word has been brutalized, right? There is a true religion, friends. You and I need to understand that. Not all religion is bad. There is a true religion. James chapter 1 would say it this way, a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So there is a true religion. There is at least one element, one, one, one avenue of this word that is honorable, loving, and good. It will bless your life and it will bless the people's lives around you. So we need to work hard at redeeming this word, at least in our culture, uh, especially with our children. We, like the Jews, have merged religion and tradition, and then we've despised them both. You see, the Jewish people didn't really despise their religion. In order to be a good Jew, you had to love it. But they brought in tradition to it. They brought in the will of man on top of the will of God, and then they made the will of man the same or equal to the will of God. What God says is right and wrong is now on par with what man says is right or wrong, and this is where they come into conflict with Jesus. So you and I, in our culture, we have to be careful that we take religion and we take tradition, and you and I pull them apart, and then we sift for proper religion, and we sift for proper traditions. Not everything that's been handed down to us is bad or sinful or wrong. And what happens when we merge these things, when we make our own religion or we play with our traditions and we set them up to be uh, as God's word to us, we make sinful what God has not and we make righteous, normal, or wink, wink, acceptable what the Lord will curse. And we need to be very careful as, as Christians interacting in a free culture that we don't give people the impression that just because there's no immediate judgment to sinful things that there's not going to be them in the future. Because God says he blesses certain things and he curses certain things. And no amount of tradition, no amount of, of uh, legal maneuvering 
is going to change those things. If God said it is right and he will bless it, it will be right and he will bless it. If God says it is wrong and he will curse it, eventually you will come to the point where you have to give account. And just because sometimes he is gracious and merciful and extends that time, we think we're getting away with things. And as a culture, we're watching it right now. Listen, friends, I'm just going to give you one piece, and I'm not going to dwell on it anymore. But if you go back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s when the government thought they could break the family and it wasn't going to have ramifications, welcome to 2022. You say, well, I don't, I don't believe you. Well, talk to a school teacher. They'll let you know what the fruit is. Talk to somebody in emergency services. They'll let you know what the fruit has been when we broke the family. And so we can tinker with these things and we can play with them. And just because judgment is not immediately, we think we're going to get away with them. That's not how this works. There is a right religion and there are good traditions. And when we start to tinker, we make a mess. The Jewish leaders were doing that in Jesus' day and that's what runs them right into a buzzsaw. I love this uh, definition. I found it this morning. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition lives in conversations with the past while remembering where we are and when we are and that it is we who have to decide. Traditionalism supposes that nothing should ever be done for the first time. So all that is needed to solve any problem is to arrive at the supposedly unanimous testimony of this homogenized tradition. And I suppose I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. Church historian made that comment. Man, that is really good. There are some good things. There are some bad things. They need to be pulled apart. They need to be sifted. Traditionalism makes a religion out of tradition. We're not going to change this. We're not going to deviate here. We're not going to do this. Well, where's it at in the Word? Well, not not technically there, right? I mean, this is as sinful as what God says not to do, but it's not really in His Word. Listen, that's what Jesus tells the Pharisees. You bind up things that you don't carry yourself, and you lay them over the back of all of these people, and you make them carry them. Things that God never required, laws that God never made. The Pharisees were binding those things up. They were laying them on the people and they were shoving them on just to go about their business. And what happened is they figured out they couldn't live under that kind of weight. They were breaking. They couldn't uphold all the laws. Tradition had made it impossible to be in right relationship with God. And then Jesus comes along. says, take my yoke upon you. My way is easy and humble of heart. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come be a part of what I have to offer. So Christ is going to now come into contact with them, and he is going to go totally confrontational against them. For those that have a a bad uh, idea of who Jesus was, this is not going to be your passage. Much like Matthew 13, it's going to really drive you crazy. Like, Jesus can be aggressive. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Jesus is not always nice. Oh, no, he's rough to those who need it. He's tender and kind to everybody that receives it. But for those, especially those that are leading people astray, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And today we're going to get a little glimpse of that. Religion is the framework by which we live. It can be right or wrong, and it's made up of another word that we use that we hate, doctrine. Doctrine. 
what you and I actually believe. The set of beliefs that we have as our doctrine, those things strung together make up our religion. There is one that is true, one that is right. Anything that has mankind entered into it, giving us an idea of what's right or wrong or how we're going to get to heaven or who Jesus is, these things that mankind have entered in, they pervert the whole system. They break it. Like I can earn my way to heaven. No, you can't. Like, well, if I just do a little bit more right than wrong... I can get to heaven. No, you can't. Well, if I martyr myself for the cause, I'll go to heaven. No, you won't. You see, there is one proper religion. Jesus lived it. The Bible uh, prescribes it. You and I are to find its ways. We are to walk in those ancient paths. There is nothing wrong with the word religion. Everybody has one. One of the greatest farces in our culture is that some people do not have a religion they do have a religion they have a set of beliefs they live by and you know the funny part they want you to live by them too say what crack open a textbook in a public school somebody has a religion that they want your children to believe flip on the tv there's a religion being pitched Can you sift it? Can you sort it? Can you see it? Can you help your children realize where it's right and where it's wrong? Can you do that? That's the requirement of our life. We need to be as wise as anybody that's ever lived right now because the information is so constant. You and I are dealing with just everywhere you go, there's information being given. We need to be able to discern it, to work through it. Everybody has a religion. They have their doctrines. I didn't come from anything. I'm pond scum. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to take what I want to take. I'm going to hurt who I want to hurt. That's, those are religious statements. There's nothing next. It doesn't matter. That's a religious statement. And we live in a culture where everyone wants to impose that on somebody else. If they didn't, they wouldn't get so riled up every time you come in and say, mm, you're made in the image of God. <laughs> There's a creator that loves you, and you're going to be accountable to him. And they're like, oh. Everybody's hair's on fire. Why? Because two religions are pushing against each other. We need to stop being fooled. The word tradition. Tradition is an inheritance from those before us. Wise or foolish can be a tradition. Right or wrong can be a tradition. I love this quote. Tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of fire. Man, when there are good things in traditions, we need to grab a hold of them. We need to keep a hold of them. We need to keep fanning them into flame. Like there are some really good traditional things that we need to go back to, grab a hold of, and bring with us as we go and, tr- and, and, and teach our children them. Say, so what's the biggest one I can come up with right now? How about a day of rest? Right? Like we Americans, like we used to do two days. Like we went above and beyond, right? Saturday and Sunday, like stuff's closed down, ain't going anywhere, we're hanging out. And then Saturday kind of got taken. Right? Well, I'm working on Saturday. Okay. Well, we're doing this on Saturday. Okay. Well, at least there's Sunday. Right? There's one tradition you and I need to grab a hold of and take it back for ourselves, and then pass it down to our children. Why? Because the rat race is killing people. That's a tradition we need to grab a hold of. One that would be nice to figure it out as quick as possible. Why? Because I need to make sure that my children don't trip over the same things I tripped over. And we have a large enough sample size to know when you give up certain things, what comes because of it. This one is one we know very, very well. We're wore out, strung out, frustrated. 
Tradition is the corpse of wisdom. Traditionalism is the worship of a fallible past and our fallible ancestors. Do you see the difference? Traditionalism is we're not going to change this, right? This is my seat. This is my carpet. This is my sanctuary. This sits here. That sits there. We worship this way. Don't break the pattern, right? All of these things that come in that most people push against is traditionalism. It's not tradition. It's been a perversion of that. It's taking things that are man-made and and putting them on the same level as things that are God-given. God didn't say this, the first pastor did. God didn't say this, my dad did. That would be traditionalism. And you can't question or change those things unless what? Unless you have enough clout. People come along all the time and they change tradition. But you know what they have to have? They have to have a huge following. And they have to push real hard, and they have to be somebody that people want to follow. So you can change traditionalism. You can change it, but it takes a serious move in order to do it. So you have religion made up with doctrine. We have the idea of tradition, which isn't necessarily bad. And then we have traditionalism. We're going to see all of them today in this passage as we work through. Look at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9 with me. Dead religion. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your uh, disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God? Do you see the change? Huge difference here. Listen, you all, Jesus knows how to debate. And he also knows how to put people in a position where they have to actually deal with what they're saying. You and I could be a little better at that. We could definitely teach our kids to be better at that. Like, I long for the day that our kids go to college and their professors are kicking them out of class because they actually have an answer for stuff. I really long for that day. Like the 19-year-old that goes in the college classroom and says, that's not correct. Or that's not totally true. Evolution settled science? I thought it was still a theory. Can we point to a skeleton that's changed? Like, I just want something like that. Jesus knows how to do that. They're asking him why his disciples break tradition. And he looks at them and says, why do you break the commands of God? He answered them, and why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Mm. It always feels good to be called, don't it? Jesus, he's so nice and just just a kitten, just walking around, just hanging out. And then all of a sudden, you hypocrites, brood of vipers, sons of Satan, like there's some real zingers. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the what? The commandments of men. They teach as doctrine what God has said is right and wrong, the commands and the tradition of men. And so what is Jesus's, What is one of his problems with the, the Pharisees that he's interacting with right now? He says, you have elevated tradition and the commandment of men with the commandment of God and labeled them the same thing, that to break what you deem important is to sin against God. And that's not how this works. 
The Lord has laid out for us what is right, what is wrong, and then we come in and we start to tinker. And Jesus is confronting them right now with that doctrine and dereliction. You are, you are not doing what it is you are supposed to be doing. The ceremony mentioned in this passage is not about hygiene. It's, a, it's just a picture of religious, religiosity. Like how religious are you? Are you doing this little ceremony prior to and are you going into and are you doing what we have deemed right or wrong? It's not about hygiene aspect of what's going on. Like I'm not telling you to go home and stop telling your kids to wash their hands before they eat. Have mercy. Talk about an outbreak, right? E. coli and botulism and everything else. We'd be down for months around here. It's not a hygiene thing. This is a religious thing, something that men have dreamed up, something that they like to show how religious and how good they are by doing it over and over and over. And so now they're mad that Jesus' disciples aren't partaking in this too. And this is going to be a reoccurring theme through the Gospels. Jesus and the disciples are going to do things that irk the Pharisees. But they're not disobeying God. At least not when they're doing what Jesus is doing. When they're following his example, they are not disobeying God. Verses 3 to 6, Jesus reverses the question and again points out their hypocrisy. Korban is the word that they use. And from what I've gathered, um, What would happen is, instead of taking care of your parents like you were supposed to, you would say, well, all of this has been dedicated to the Lord. And so the idea would be you could keep tinkering and partaking in the stuff that you had earned or or your blessings and not have to actually take care of your parents like you should according to Old Testament law. This is korban. This is a gift of God. This is a gift to God. And so I really can't give you that, mom or dad. Right? Enjoy the crumbs. I think they're giving stuff away down right by the church, going down and get you some. By the synagogue, they're passing out gifts. Jesus says, you're, you're worried about we're not doing this traditional thing, and yet most of you have basically hoarded your wealth and kept it from your own parents. I've told you this before, and while we're here, I'm just going to hit it one real quick time. Listen to me, parents. This is why you demand respect from your children. You demand it. Whatever it takes to get it, you go to that line. You get there and you stay there and you hold the line until they learn that. Because if your children do not respect you, they will not respect anyone, including the Lord. They were handed to you and you got them when they were little and we got to start then. If you're a little late to the game, if your mind has changed on some stuff, that's fine. You do what you got to do to make respect part of what's going on in their life. But when they're 18 months old, two, three, running around like little terrorists, right? And they're holding you hostage in every way they can, emotionally, mentally, at night, sleep deprivation, like they got them all. You demand, require, and hold the line on respect. Why? Because in that, you're teaching them how to respect other authority, and ultimately, you're teaching them how to respect God Almighty. And if you don't do that, if you let your children grow up despising you enough, disrespecting you enough to run the game, number one, you'll drive them crazy. These kids are not dealing well with being in charge of everything. They need the authority of someone that loves them and can build those guardrails. You'll drive them crazy, but you'll also run them into chaos everywhere they go. They won't know how to interact with a boss. They won't know how to interact with the police. And they won't know how to interact with God Almighty. And it starts when they're throwing a temper tantrum in Walmart because you can't walk through the toy aisle. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? It starts then. This is part of that. God says, look at even what Jesus says, like the Old Testament command is what? If you don't honor your mother and father, what happens to you? Surely you should die. Like, why is that so harsh? Because it's contagious. Like sexual sin. It rots a culture. When the kids don't respect their parents, it rots a culture. There's no way to get it back. You've done too much damage. Verses 7 to 9, to some, what's going on here? Well, to some in this passage, tradition is greater than God's law. To some, social standing is better than obedience. And to some, rigid traditionalism is what? It's better than godly growth or reformation. What I mean by that is sometimes our traditions need to change. They need to be brought back in line with Scripture. They need to find the heart of Scripture, the command of Scripture, and they need to live there. For some people, rigid traditionalism, doing what we've always done, is more important than godly growth or reformation. Some of these churches that have no young people need to pay attention to this passage. They need to hear what I just said. Because part of the reason is not because they're right in their doctrine. It's because their traditions are driving away people that will not conform to that. And here's the piece. Not all of them need to be conformed to. Some of them need to be rejected. And so when you're looking at these things and Jesus is talking in this passage to these people, he's talking to a crowd that some of them, their tradition is more important than being godly or being righteous or growing. Or God help us being corrected and reformed. That's what makes all of this so dangerous. It is the appearance of godliness. But there's no God in it. Their hearts are far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so we see these pieces start to come together. And Jesus goes further in verse 10. Look what he says. And he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, I love this, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I love that. Do you know that? He's pretty aware. He saw the look on his face, right? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. We are talking about a spiritual problem. From a religion to our reality, Jesus spells out our reality to us, and it is frightening, and it is terrifying, and it matches exactly what the Old Testament would say early on. Isaiah 29 says, but their heart is far from me. He just repeats that for them, but there's others. Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart. That should scare us. And it is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Other passages would put up. You say, what is wrong with me? It's not what you're eating. It's what's coming out of your heart. What is wrong with me? 
The, so- the soil's poisoned. We were born that with the first time you and I could defy God. We just showed where our heart was. We showed who we were. And we find ourselves in conflict with the God of the universe. Look at Proverbs 27. It says, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. If my heart is wicked, I am in trouble. It is going to reflect who I am. Jesus looks at them and says, these traditions aren't changing the outward of what's coming out of them. It's not changing those things. Why? Because they don't work. They're not godly. Your traditions of of washing your hands before you eat, they're not creating in you a heart that doesn't spit slander or false witness or want to commit adultery or want to commit idolatry. Like It's not solving that. Washing your hands before you eat this meal is just showing everybody else how religious you can be. It's not changing who you are from the inside out. Jesus said what that does is show us who we are. He would say in Luke 6, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. You have the religion that they're pitching. You have the reality that you and I live in. We are in big trouble. Left to ourselves. We know this. We interact with with other people on a daily basis. We know something's wrong. We interact in our home with with sinful people. We know something's wrong. Out of my heart comes this wickedness. Jesus is speaking and trying to help them, but instead of finishing the conversation in this passage, I love where he goes. He goes into a new resolve. Jesus says this kind of tradition is producing this kind of person and it's not working. But then in chapter uh, verse 21, we see the picture of what we can hope for. And Jesus went away from there and he withdrew to the, the district of Tyre and Sidon and beheld a Canaanite woman from that region come out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away. For she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed. What a passage. What a picture. Like he goes from the Pharisees, these religious holy people, this group of men, he goes from them into the desperation of one Gentile woman. Like there's a huge contrast here that you and I need to pick up on. The necessity is the, if, if necessity is the mother of invention, then desperation is the seed of real faith. If necessity makes you and I create something different so that life can get a little better, a little easier, a little more productive, then the only thing that's going to create a proper faith is is desperation. This lady is desperate. Verse 21, 22, from Jewish holy men uh, to two cursed Gentile cities that go to Tyre and Sodom. There's, there's, There's prophecies in the Old Testament about the wickedness of these cities. Jesus is going there. He's going there. The religious man would never set foot there. He goes there. He's going to preach and he's going to teach and he's going to love. 
And as he is there, this Gentile woman comes up from the holy men to a Gentile woman, from these holy men to this sinner. She's going to come up. You see, she has a need that she doesn't deserve to have filled. She's going to need mercy. And she's going to find it. The Pharisees don't think they need mercy. They think they can keep the law and earn salvation. They can earn God's smile. They don't need mercy. We go right into this story where she has nothing but mercy. She has a name to call on, the Son of Man. She uses Jesus' favorite name for himself out of Daniel, the one high and lifted up, the Son of Man. She calls out to the one. She has hope. What else does she have? She has a need that nothing else can fix. Total desperation. Verses 23 to 27, what do we see? She has nowhere to go, no reason to accept a no, and no need to get offended. She has tremendous resolve. She comes in and asks for something. I don't know what the Lord is doing here, right? I know he's teaching me and you a lesson. She comes in and asks for something. It is a reasonable request, but she is not a Jew. And so he says, I've come for the children of Israel Gentile time will come later. Right now, it's just me and the Jewish people, and I am pitching this message. And instead of getting mad and walking away and stomping off, what does she do? She comes back for a second go. Why? Because she is desperate. That's the kind of faith you and I need. She comes back a second time. Jesus, you can do it. Son of man, you can do it. And he looks back and he says, listen, it's not good. There's a couple different meanings to the word dog. One is, one is vicious and vile. One is what was run in the street. They're scavengers. They're unclean animals. They're horrible. The other one is kind of the idea of a pet in the house. And I think both of them are playing out here. But Jesus looks at her and says, it's not good to give the children's food to the dogs. How many of you right now are like, done, we're fighting. Right? Me and Jesus going at it. How many of you are ready? just been insulted what is he teaching us with this passage tenacious resolve third time your faith is great third time but jesus even the dogs eat the crumbs that the kids drop the contrast of the pharisees saying we got this to the Gentile woman coming up and saying, for the sake of my daughter, out of my desperation, I will be called a dog and I will still believe that you're going to help me. That is faith that saves. That is faith that changes lives. That is the kind of resolve that you and I need. We need that kind of tenacity where we're willing to take a little bit of a beating, where we're willing even to wait. Some of us won't even wait for an answer. God, help me. Don't even wait for an answer. Like, like not now is not something we're going to deal with. And Jesus is looking at her and saying, listen, I've come for the Israelites. I've come to feed the children. You're a dog. I can't give them what you have. Like, I don't know how else to explain this passage other than he is pushing her and she is teaching me and you a lesson. But the dogs eat what the children drop. And Jesus says, your faith is great. Is it worth that miracle to deal with a little bit of offense? Can you and I dig our heels in at work, 
Can you deal with a little bit of an offense at work? Can you deal with a little bit of offense from other people to dig your heels in and watch God work, work on you and then work through you? Part of that miracle is you and I coming back to the well and saying, Lord, I need you. This needs to happen. I need help here. I need you to show up. Not just quitting and walking off. This woman shows that, and she does it in, in direct contrast of those that are supposed to be religious. Matthew 15, 28, and we finish there. Jesus answered her and said, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This imputed righteousness, this, this faith that you and I have in the one that is worthy makes us righteous. It unlocks a new heart. It unlocks a new life. It gives you power and access to things you don't have in and of yourself. And you will never have at the age of 10 or 100. You'll never have these things that God gives you when you and I have faith in Jesus This imputed righteousness changes us from the inside out. It gives us a new heart so that that wicked one, though it is still there and it still rears its ugly head, it's not in charge anymore. It's not the only game in town. I can feed this new heart, scripture, and time with people and and honor and glorify Christ and he can create in me something new. The fruit of the Spirit comes out. You get a new heart and a new life, and it's unlocked through faith in Jesus. She is given attention by the one she doesn't deserve. This is what salvation looks like. So are you and I. He could have just ignored her and just kept walking. He didn't even have to walk there to begin with. You and I are given attention from the one that we do not deserve. She is given an answer from the one that can give it. So are we. You've been given answers to your questions. You've been given answers to your life. You've been given answers to why you are here and what you are supposed to be doing. So was she. She advocates for the needs of others. So should we. Why is she there? Why is she begging this rabbi? I mean, I don't know if she knows he's Messiah yet. She calls him the son of, uh, son of man, which is huge, son of David, right? These ideas that are coming out of Scripture and all this glory and all this goodness. But does she know exactly what's going on? I don't know. But she's there because her daughter needs help. She's advocating for other people. And what happens because of her faith? She blesses other people. So can we. She is used to bless not only her daughter, but the disciples when they see this happen. She blesses them because she teaches them something. And she's blessing you and I because we're reading her story. And finally, she's an outsider and a sinner with tremendous problem, with a tremendous problem and no resources. As they come this morning to play and we get ready to wrap up, listen, friends, that's you and I. We are outsiders. We are sinners. We have a tremendous need and we have no resources. You cannot pay your sin debt. You can't wipe it away. You can't work it off. You can't hide it. You and I are without what we need to earn and achieve God's mercy and God's grace. And yet he gives them freely. She goes to Jesus because he is the one she knows can help. She asks with faith because she knows he is the one that can help. If you will it, it will happen. If you want it to happen, it will happen. And it happens. The first part of your Christian life, salvation looks just like that. It has to. 
If you come to Christ in any other way than that kind of desperation, we had, we had some sleepers. They're up. I would say the Lord's talking to you, but I'm not going to lay that kind of guilt down. Listen, that, that moment of salvation, that first moment of salvation looks just like that. If it looks like anything else, you've never met him. If you didn't come in extreme desperation, if you didn't come as a sinner and an outsider just begging for mercy and help, if you came any other way or if somebody drug you to it, you're not there. This kind of desperation is how faith starts. It's also how it continues. You and I wake up every morning knowing the God of grace is still there. The God of mercy is still there. He gave me what I needed yesterday. He's going to give it to me again today. And I am going to proceed through this life in faith. Not in my traditions, not in my traditionalism, but the commands of God that Jesus has won, that Jesus has accomplished. And then he looks at me and says, I hand them to you. I hand you my righteousness. And you and I get up every day and live in that kind of glory. Would you stand this morning? If you need something, you need prayer, you want to come and talk to somebody, do it now, do it after. Just don't leave here without doing business with God.